ending of this man called Joseph of Arimathea. Um, I've taken a few quotes from the other Gospels as well and put it together. But the reason I want to talk about uh, Joseph of Arimathea today, there are 11 Josephs mentioned in the Bible. Uh, three or four of them are very significant. Joseph in the Old Testament, the great-grandson of um, Abraham, the one who went to Egypt, became prime minister of Egypt, and became very significant in a 600-year plan that God gave to Abraham, uh, in that he went to Egypt and was able to bring Jacob and his family into Egypt, where they grew from a family to a mighty nation over 400 years. He played a very significant role. And, uh, and I use the the, the, the concept that if he hadn't done what he'd been raised up to do, who would have done it? And uh, then you come over to the New Testament, and uh, there's two that I want to mention before, uh, and one of them is Joseph of Arimathea. But I look at the life of Jesus, and I look that when he came to earth, and uh, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, uh, then the Lord came down, and, um, and uh, spoke to Joseph, her engaged, her fiancé, and said to him, listen, I don't want you to cut your relationship with Mary because she's pregnant and uh, you're wondering how she got pregnant and uh, you're not really being sold on this story that it was by God. Um, and he had three angelic visitations. And the first angelic visitation told him to marry Mary and build a relationship with her. Then he had another angelic visitation which told him to take Mary uh, out of Israel because Herod the king wanted to kill every child because he was threatened by this uh, potential king of Israel, Jesus. And then the angel came to him a third time and told him to go back to Israel uh, so that uh, uh, Jesus could grow and, and fulfill his destiny. When I read that story, I thought, at the beginning of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a guy called Joseph. And um, he came alongside, not with a fantastic gift of his own right, but he came along to look after Mary, build a relationship with Mary, and then to protect her and her gift, which was Jesus from death, and then finally to bring them back to Israel where he could be nurtured and grown and come to fulfill his destiny. And I thought, that's incredible. Jesus Christ needed a significant person around his life. And then I come to the end of his life, and I see there's another Joseph. And he turns up at the cross when Jesus is being judged and by the Romans and by the Jews. And uh, finally he is sent to the cross and he dies on the cross. And over an 18-hour period, there suddenly appears this guy called Joseph of Arimathea, another Joseph. And again, he played a significant role around the life of Jesus. Just going to the notes, I've got a verse from... 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 23, and it says this. It says, On the contrary, those parts of the body, those parts of the church that seem to be the weaker are indispensable. And I come up with this thought, discovering moments of significance. Uh, you know, where a person suddenly finds that you're it. There are over 7.3 billion people on the face of the earth, and we get the sense with so many bods around and uh, that, you know, we're not important. 
We can get into the church and we can feel because the church is so big and it is achieving so much today, my importance can be minimized. But Paul, when he wrote in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, he was saying that every part of the body of Christ, even the most least and unimportant members, are indispensable. They are required. They are necessary. I thank God this morning we've got sound guys at the back who know what they're doing. All right. You know, they've got so much technology today, they could turn me into Mickey Mouse. Because they did that in a service when I preached a few years ago as a bit of humor. Amen. They changed my voice. And I turned into a crackly Mickey Mouse. I didn't mind. Afterwards, I was going to deal with them. Uh, but uh, they can do anything. But they're indispensable for the function. Everybody carries a role of being indispensable. And the reason that I'm looking at Joseph of Arimathea today, I'm going to look at him, but I'm going to draw some points from his life that I believe we can apply in our own lives as we journey in this journey that we are engaged in in life as well as as Christians. And um, so as I look at this here, I see Joseph of Arimathea is closing off the life of Jesus. Joseph, the husband of Mary, was there at the beginning. And he carried a significant role. I often have thought, flicking back to Joseph, the the, uh, husband of Mary, I was thinking about if God had a second option. You ever thought about that? Okay, here's Joseph engaged to Mary, and uh, Mary is pregnant, and therefore, back in those days, socially, that was a very, very unacceptable status to be in. And so what happens when the angel came to Joseph and said, Joseph, I want you to marry Mary. I want you to build an ongoing relationship with her so that you can protect her, so that you can look after her as her gift is developed. And we all carry gifts in a metaphorical sense to what I'm talking about with Jesus. And so to, 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 to develop her gift. And, and Joseph kind of said, look, it's going gonna, it's gonna, to you know, tarnish my reputation if I marry her. Everybody will know that she was pregnant before you know, we got married. And, and there's going to be a tarnishing taking place around my life. And he said, look, I really, really, really don't, really, 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 really don't want to do this. And, and, and my question is, does God have a second option? To look after Mary, to nurture the gift, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the Lord comes down and, and selects people from time to time, he puts a lot of trust. I think when he chose Mary, and he looks down at Mary, and he says, you're going to bear a child by the Holy Spirit. And she says, let it be as you have said, Lord. In other words, she consented to it. And I kind of think, if she hadn't, did God have another option? Now, if you fit into certain theologies today, you would say God is in providential control, and uh, he knew she was going to do that. Yes, but she still could have said no. (laughs) Uh, We won't go along that dilemma here. I'll let your pastor deal with that one. We have talked about that one. Amen. But uh, then we come over to Joseph of Arimathea. And I think of a person who just hasn't appeared on the pages of Scripture. And right at the last moment, the critical moment, there he is. And I'm going to read the Scripture this morning uh, because I believe it'll it'll give the background uh, to um, my message and save a little bit of time as we go on. Uh, Reading from the, if you've got the notes there, you'll see the text has been put in there. It says, With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. He's dying on the cross. 
It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. Evening approached. Now there was a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who going to Pilate, that's the Roman governor, asked for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a rich man from Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jews. He was also a prominent member of the council, that's the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Jewish council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. He was a good man and an upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. That's the council's decision to crucify Jesus. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. And he was accompanied by Nicodemus, that's another very secret disciple, who, who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought mixtures of myrrh and alloys, uh, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and stripes of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. It was Joseph of Arimathea's own new tomb and uh, that he had cut out from the rock. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Amen. So I want to just pick up on this particular story, and, um, and I just want to uh, touch on four points here this morning. But before we do this, I see in your notes you've got a couple of words to fill in. Lessons from Joseph of Arimathea. We know that he was a great man of God uh, because history and tradition later on says that after this event he got ostracized by the Jews in Jerusalem. Some say he was thrown into prison. Tradition says that an angel took him out of prison, but that's all tradition. Uh, tradition says he had uh, definitely had an empire of uh, mineral mining business throughout the Roman Empire as far as England. And, uh, and some today still have uh, in uh, a place called um, uh, Glastonbury in England, on the west coast of England, there's a, a place where he's honoured and remembered today, if anyone's ever been there. But that's all tradition. But uh, this guy suddenly appears on Scripture. And it tells us, number one, that he was a prominent, uh, held prominent positions in religion, government, and in business circles. It says that he was kingdom-oriented. In other words, he was hungry for what God was doing in the earth at that time, and he was a secret disciple of Jesus. And it says, number three, that he held a strong godly values. And, uh, and when the pressure came on, he stuck by his values. Now I want to get on to these four points, and I'm going to read them out first of all, and then I'm just going to draw from them. The first one is he stood up, then he stepped up, and then he weighed up, and then he offered up. <clears throat> um, here he is in the Sanhedrin, 18 hours. That's his whole life existence in the Bible. He comes on the scene, and within 18 hours, he disappears off Scripture. But he carries a significant, significant role in the life of Jesus. And here they are, they're in the Sanhedrin. And, uh, and he's there, and uh, the quorum for the Sanhedrin was actually 23 people, so he didn't have to be there. But he's at this religious council of 70 persons, and they're making a decision about Jesus Christ. 
Maybe it was an illegal decision because it was being made at night, but they're making a decision. And the cry is to crucify him. And finally, being a secret disciple, it comes to the point where he can't stand being silent any longer. He's got to stand up. And he stands up and he voices his opinion. Now, that's the dumbest thing he could have ever done. Because if these guys want to crucify Jesus and they see there's a prominent member of the Sanhedrin there and he stands up and wants to defend Jesus, he's a marked man. These people were attack dogs, all right? They were religious zealots. They were almost in an uh, a, um, emotional state of almost a, a, ter- a, a, terroristic, uh, a terrorist cult. You know, they had their phases of, of hatred and, um, and, uh, and uh, 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 murderous intent. And this is what they had towards Jesus. He stood up. And the minute he stood up, he, he basically, his life changed. And this is what happens with conviction. This world, I, I was hearing our brother talking about prisons, and you stand up, and you... And, and you make yourself accountable, and you get involved in something. And the minute you stand up and voice an opinion, it, you, you're set on a road almost like a domino effect. You ever stacked up a whole lot of dominoes in a line, and then you've knocked the first one over, and it goes boing, 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 boing. Anyone ever done that? I haven't done it for a long time. I love watching those ones on television where they, they do a big one in a hall and someone finally starts it. And it meow, meow, meow. Yeah, well, you know, th- this is what he was doing. He was standing up and he's in this critical moment of, um, of uh, saying that he wants to support Jesus and everything that Jesus is doing. Moses did the same thing, you know. Moses was 40 years of age and he was raised in an Egyptian household and learned in all the wisdom of Egypt and he he started to discover that he was from a Jewish background so uh, the Jewish nation was in slavery so he goes and visits them and he sees an Egyptian beating up a Jew and he comes and intervenes and kills the Egyptian and he stood up on his convictions. You think everything would have gone nice after that, but I want to tell you he had to run for his life and spend 40 years in the wilderness being trained in wilderness dynamic before he came back at the age of 80 and led the nation of Israel out of Egypt. Amen. I mean, the moment he stood up, he should not have stood up. He should not have voiced his opinion. He should have remained a secret disciple, should have remained quiet. Amen. But there's something in you, isn't there? When Jesus gets a hold of your heart and hold of your life today, you stand up. I ran missions for many years as well. I've had six churches, and all my churches have had ministry programs and missions programs. In the Assemblies of God, I was on our executive for 20 years, held all roles, held church planning roles as, as well as mission roles. But I remember traveling over to uh, the mission field way back, one, two, my third church. I was involved in missions. And I remember on my third church in Gisborne, we had quite a good move of God. And I remember God spoke to me one day and said, it's time you kind of looked at the world. And I remember I bought a ticket and went over into Asia into some, you know, jungle area and came back five, five weeks later and lost probably about 10K off this frame. And um, skinny as anything came back. Uh, but God spoke to me, amen. The minute I stood up 
and went there. Changed your life forever. From there on, every one of my churches got involved in missions. I got involved with missionaries. I would send missionaries. I would make sure they're properly funded. I ran missions for Assemblies of God in New Zealand. I got passionate about it. I should have shut up, stayed in Gisborne, and left it alone. Amen. But when you stand up, when God speaks to you, when God moves you and you stand up, I'll tell you, transformation will take place. And everyone here finds themselves in a different position, different responsibilities. And we're all called from time to time to stand up on our convictions. We've got Christians today in business. They need to stand up for what is right and true. Sure, you apply wisdom, but you've got to stand up. Amen. You've got to stand up. I've got friends who in politics today, MPs. Amen. And God spoke to them. I dealt with them as they were uh, considering entering politics and comes down to their conviction. And I says, if you stand up, amen, your life will change. And they stood up, amen, and they went into politics. I reckon one friend of mine, he's an MP in New Plymouth, Jonathan Young, and when he stood up, you know, he wasn't going to get in. I mean, I was working with him through the whole election process, and uh, he had been pastoring a church, and a new pastor was getting ready to take over, and he says, look, if he wins the election tonight, how do we take over tomorrow? I said, well, he mightn't win it tonight. It might be so close that you have to wait another fortnight. And they said, really? I said, yeah, and that's exactly what happened. 105 votes different, you know. And had to wait for another fortnight for a recount. Amen. But he stood up. No one thought he would get in because he didn't hide his Christian conviction. When they asked him his background, he's 17 years in the ministry, he just declared it. People says, oh, you should keep it quiet. No, 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 no. He declared it and he got in and he's still in. Amen. Sometimes when you stand up, you think everything will go against you. But you stand up on your conviction. Use wisdom. God gave us a brain. Let's use it. Amen. So we say he stood up. If he hadn't stood up, I'll tell you how he would have suffered. He would have affected his budding faith. He would have affected his conscience. And he would have affected his dignity. There are times I know from the past that if I hadn't stood up, what it would have cost me. And we see Joseph of Arimathea stood up. We go to step next point because the minute you stand up, oh, brother, the dominoes start to fall. So here he is stood up and spoken for Jesus, but Jesus is crucified and he's dead on the cross. Joseph of Arimathea is there somewhere and he observes all this and suddenly he starts in his heart and he says, well, who's going to handle the body of Jesus? Now, Jesus was possibly crucified as a terrorist. Under the law back then, that meant he would be going to the rubbish dump. Hinnon rubbish dump. That's where he'd be going. All right? Family would have been too scared to claim it. The disciples wouldn't have claimed it, his body. So what's going to happen to his body? So who's the only person who carries a little bit of influence and weight? Joseph of Arimathea. He's on the Sanhedrin. He's a successful businessman, and he's also respected by the Roman government. He's the only guy who has the capacity to really go and make something happen. And that's scary when you suddenly realize you're it. You're looking around and saying, well, he's it, she's it, they're it, 
I'm a secret disciple. They'll do it. They'll do it. And suddenly when you look around, there's nobody and you're it. And when you're it, you're it. And God begins to deal with us in our situations which are all different, whether it be business or social or religious or whatever it might be amongst our family. The bottom line does come somewhere along the line, like with Joseph of Arimathea, he finds that he is it. He's the only option. And so he steps up and he goes and he asks for the body of Jesus. And, uh, and uh, Pilate checks that Jesus is dead and then issues a, a decree that Joseph can take the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he takes the body of Jesus, as, and, as we will read in a few moments. You know, <clears throat> stepping up is a little bit different to standing up. Stepping up is moving out and suddenly saying, I'm going to take a course of action. You know, every time we make a decision, a decision has got to be followed through. I know theologians in the past, in the, way back in the past, always had trouble reconciling James' epistle in the Bible with Paul's. And uh, because James talks about, you know, faith without works is dead. Paul was talking about you're not saved by works, but you're saved by faith alone. But Paul's referring to faith as against works of the law, trying to impress God by good works. Whereas James was basically saying, once you've got faith, faith will start to give evidence by good works. So there's two, two different scenarios. And so the minute Joseph stood up in the Sanhedrin, he inevitably was going to come to, he had to step up and start to do something. He had to step out, and that took a decision. And his stepping out took him uh, to visit Pilate and ask for the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to the uh, number three, where he weighed up. Now, this is where it gets really interesting, because him and Nicodemus are very religious people. They, I believe they were both Pharisees, therefore they adhered to very strict religious rituals and laws. And one religious law was simply this. The Passover is coming up uh, uh, within the next day. And uh, with the Passover coming up, one thing you're not allowed to do is touch a dead body within seven days of the Passover or you're unclean. And you can't participate in the Passover. So he had to weigh up the implications of how his religious life was going to be affected he had asked for the body of Jesus, and the Bible says that him and Nicodemus went and took the body. It doesn't say they delegated it to their servants. It says they did it. And so they had to then consider, if we're going to go and take the body of Jesus, the implications are we're disqualifying ourselves from our religious beliefs and rituals. And when you touch the cross of Jesus Christ, it's transformational. I'll never forget the day that I finally committed my life to Jesus Christ. It was transformational. I stood up and I confessed Jesus as my Savior. From the next day at work, things started to change. I thank God for the initiative he took in delivering me of a blasphemous tongue and of a very angry disposition. That was immediate. But I want to tell you, then came to the point I had to step up. I remember I was at home. I used to live by myself, go to work, come home, cook a meal, what they call a one-pot meal, everything in the pot, all right? 
One pot, because one pot. And you eat the meal out of the pot, all right? Because that saves washing. If you visit me to have a meal with me, you eat out of the lid, all right? I eat out of the pot, you eat out of the lid, amen. I had it down to a fine art, I can tell you, amen. And I come home and I'm there and I'm cooking my meal in my one pot meal and suddenly the Holy Spirit says to me, I want you to go to that open air downtown. There was a whole lot of old people from the church used to meet down on the corner and they used to preach into thin air. And before I was converted, we used to drive past in the car and wind the windows down and encourage them. You know what I mean by that, don't you? you know? and, uh, and, and the Spirit of God just said to me, I want you to go to that open air. I couldn't get away from it. I didn't know what the Spirit of God was. I just used to call them God things. And I had this God thing to go to the engine. And so that night, I worked it all out. It's going to be 7 o'clock. I'll go about 20 past 7. I'll sneak around the back, slip into the doorway of the shop where no one can see me because I was very sneaky in those days. And so uh, about 7.20, they're all out there barking out into thin air. And, uh, and uh, you know, they're doing a good thing, but it didn't fit into my way of doing things. I cannot see the point in talking to air. I like to talk to people. All right? And so uh, I remember I snuck back and I'm sitting, standing back there in the doorway. No one saw me there. Then this old Pentecostal preacher, Howard Fawcett. Oh, God, been around right back from the Wigglesworth days. He's out there and he's saying, Well, we're now going to have a testimony from a young man. And I'm looking around and say, Where were the young men? And, and, uh, and he says, Now, uh, Cam is going to come up and give us testimony. I'm only saved a week. I don't know anything about anything. And I walk out into the street. You see, I'm stepping up because I took a step to get there. Dumb thing. Dumb. Do not take steps. It is stupid. <laughs> and I stand out there in the street and what do you believe? I can never believe it. I believe, I don't know whether it was the world, the flesh, or the devil, or God, or whoever it was. But right at that moment, my friends, previous friends, drive past. <laughs> previous week, I was with them. Now I'm not with them. And I'm barking out into the street something about I wouldn't have a clue in the world what I said. But uh, there you are. You step up. <clears throat> It's going to come. It's not always nice stepping up, but it's not also nice weighing up. Weighing up the implications of how it's going to affect your life. And we see that because they touched the body of Jesus, they were disqualified, disqualified from um, that um, particular event. Sometimes people need their religion turned upside down. I never came from a religious background, so... Uh, and I've been a Christian 54 years, but along the line, you know, you kind of get a little bit molded my, you know, religious traditions and behaviors if you don't watch it. So you've got to build a healthy Christian tradition, a positive one, one that is not dictated by just mere rituals and practices, but one that evolves out of the dictation of the Spirit of God and the love of God and the Word of God ruling in your heart and your mind. Amen? And that's good. Glory be to God. And, uh, and so you develop this type of life. So then we go from weighing up the implications. I'll tell you, there's implications in touching Jesus. I don't care if you're in university, in school, in the workplace, 
in some government institution, in social media, I don't care what you're in. There are times when you stand up, you step up, but you've got to weigh up the implications of you touching Jesus and fulfilling Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in, live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. That's a fantastic verse. That is a scary verse. I am crucified. I've died with Christ. I've identified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You want to revolutionize your life? Read that every day for the next six months and you will be turned upside down. The last one is he offered up. He offered up. He takes Jesus off the cross <clears throat> and what are they going to do with the body? Now he is a very, very wealthy man and so he was preparing himself a very nice tomb, like a double tomb, a tomb you go into with another tomb at the back so it can be a family tomb. When you die, you go into the tomb and then certain stage you buy it, your bones are put back into the other part of the tomb. A very glossy tomb, a very expensive. This guy, this was the love of his life. I don't know why people really loved death as much as they loved it back then, but I mean he was going to be buried well. Pharaohs were buried well. And so we see that he is preparing a good tomb. I don't believe he had any idea 18 hours previously that he was preparing his tomb for the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think there's any indication anywhere in the scripture that he had any idea that this was for Jesus. It's just part of his life. It was a development of his life. He's a wealthy man. He's a religious man. He's respected in government circles. God put him there. He has no idea where his life is taking him until that 18 hours at the cross. And suddenly his life takes on a new significance. I look at Joseph in the Old Testament. He was prime minister of Egypt for nine years. 22 years since as a 17-year-old, he got a dream that one day he was going to lead something. Probably thought he'd lead his father's goat and donkey business. He didn't know that 22 years later, at the age of 39, he would be in Egypt as prime minister, and then his brothers turn up to buy food. And he suddenly says he recognized or he remembered his dream. Aha! That's what my dream is about. God prepares lives sometimes without unfolding the full significance of our life. A lot of young people today want to know about what the call of God on their life is. Follow Jesus, serve Jesus, live with high ethics, grow spiritually, do what is before you, do it to the best of your ability, and I want to tell you, you will then discover the next phase. We put too much emphasis on having to know everything rather than to do Christ-like things. And so he offered himself up, up his tomb. But did he know that he was doing something that was prophetic? 700 years previous, Isaiah, in chapter 53, verse 9, made a statement, and he said this, it says in the prophecy, speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking prophetically, right back then, it says <clears throat> in Isaiah 53, verse 9, it says, 
Messiah or Christ was assigned to a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. There's a prophecy that Jesus was going to be buried with the rich. And suddenly here he finds Joseph of Arimathea in some sort of happenstance, but providentially guided without his knowledge, he's preparing resources. One of the things that I've seen over the years, I've had a lot to do with business people. And uh, many business people wonder why they're in business. I've had business people. I was in a country overseas in Mongolia, and I spoke uh, to about 500 in Mongolia, and there were two of the top CEOs of the mining business in Mongolia. Well-dressed, highly educated in the West, but Mongolian. And they're at the meeting that night. And during my message, I took a deviation. And uh, I just talked about people's calls. And if you're called to be a businessman, and you're called to resource the kingdom of God, it doesn't mean you have to become a minister to become more spiritual. I said, that is a lot of rubbish. You don't have to become a minister or a missionary to be spiritual. You've got to fulfill what God's called you to do. And that's what Joseph of Arimathea did. Amen. And these businessmen came up to me after the meeting. And remember, these are highly educated, multi-billion dollar corporations they were running. And they said, Pastor, can we talk to you? And they said, yes. I said, yeah. And they said, how do you get your messages? Isn't that funny how they started it? They said, how do you get the messages you preach? And I gave them four ways they got it. I get messages. They said, how did you get it tonight? I said, I just felt in the Holy Spirit to, to do what I did tonight. And they said, and I had the pastor was standing there, and I called the pastor over. I said, did you tell me what to speak? He said, no. So they were just clearing that I hadn't set them up because when God speaks to people in the congregation, often they think, who, who told the pastor about my thing? You see, this is what they were trying to clarify. And, um, and so I, uh, they asked me a few more questions, and I said, now I'd like to ask you some questions. And they said, that's fine. I said, why did you ask me those questions? <coughs> and uh, they said, well, we run a, uh, mining corporations, you know, uh, power, mining, minerals, we, we run them. And we came here tonight, and we, were f we felt, remember, it's a Buddhist country, communist, but Buddhist country. And so you've still got a little bit of Buddhism there. And, uh, and uh, they, they said, we felt that for us to progress in our spiritual life, we would have to resign as businessmen or CEOs of our company and become ministers. And that night I had shot and killed and buried that sacred cow. Bang, bang, chop, chop, dig, dig, cover, cover, you know. And, uh, and uh, they, were, they were quite moved. But later on, I got a call from, from, from Mongolia later on to say that these guys, being extremely wealthy, had given a million dollars US to a church in town to buy a property, fulfilling their destiny. Fulfilling their destiny. You see, we've all got different destinies. And we kind of think, how does my destiny, my giftedness, my talent relate to the kingdom of God? Well, look at Joseph and Arimathea. 18-hour gap, he fulfilled a phenomenal part in the life of Jesus. If he was not there, who would have taken Jesus off the cross? Who would have provided a two? Only one, Joseph of Arimathea, because he was the man of the moment. Never underestimate, never look at everybody else. 
to see, oh, they've got this, they've got that. We're all unique in the body of Christ. Of course, there are some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But there are, if, if you're, a, you're a, a, an ear, the Bible says this, 1 Corinthians 12, don't try to be something that you're not. Don't try to be the eye. If you've got to listen, don't try to be a visionary. Amen. Glory be to God. That's all there in 1 Corinthians 12. You can figure it out. Be who God has made you to be and enjoy it. Hallelujah. If he calls you into a different role, it'll be clearly uh, given and that you'll be burdened with that change and you'll take that change. But enjoy who you are and be a contributor in the kingdom of God and make a difference today. And if there are any young people here, or older people, being successful in business, and God's called you to business, I'm suggesting that somewhere along the line, you get a kingdom plan for your business. And then, how can I use it to resource the kingdom of God? And if you're really, really good at it, after you've got five businesses, then set a couple up in trusts where everything goes to advance in the kingdom of God, prison ministries, children's ministries, every single thing you want to do. You say, Pastor, you're talking a little bit way out there. No, I'm not. Young people are becoming billionaires today around the world under the age of 30. And there's some smarties here today. Amen. So don't just say, I'm in business for myself and my family and I'll give a little wee trinkle to the church. God's raising you up to do something big and significant for the kingdom of God and still have your 15 Porsches and your seven Rolls Royces. Amen, if you so want them. I can't see the point of it actually, but anyway. All right. So I like to close today because I've done my time. Amen. In summary... As an indispensable person, we find standing up leads to stepping up. And inevitably, it leads us up to weighing up all the implications of our commitment and then to offering up sacrificially something deeply personal to us. And sometimes it does cut deeply personal. Joseph of Arimathea was a very wealthy man, but God asked him to offer something very personal. Please, musicians... Uh, come and uh, begin to lead us. I'd like us to stand this morning, if you would, if that's okay. I'm not commanding you. I'm just trying to ask you nicely. Uh, but uh, if you would, if you're comfortable sitting, that's fine. You just remain sitting. But I I'd like to pray, glory be to God, because even though the world is changing rapidly and there's a lot of things happening around the world today, I'm always encouraged by people who are going into areas that are never publicized. We've still got missionaries, for instance, going into the hard places of the world. There are probably 2.8 billion people in the world today who have never heard of Jesus in any form whatsoever. 95 of all missionaries around the world today are, are serving generally in Christianized or close to Christianized localities. And uh, they use that to stimulate and develop others to break into other parts of the world. But I want to tell you, New Zealand is still a sending nation. And God is still speaking to people and asking them to stand up. Stand up and make themselves available. And God is speaking to people here today. I know that. I don't have to be prophetic about that. I know God speaks to people. And you need to work the process through in your heart and life. I'm not one on just emotional decisions. 
you know, where you make a decision and then you've forgotten it by 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. God is working in the hearts of people. And there's a lot of people who need to be brought into the kingdom of God. There are a lot of ministries that need to be developed to impact our community. But the end of it all is to bring people into a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'd just like to pray today. We have men here, women here. We have people in different stations of life and in different areas of responsibility, different challenges. And God is speaking to you today. Maybe you're a Joseph of Arimathea. And there's a critical time gap where you can do something significant. I'm not saying it always happens, but it can happen to people. There are significant time gaps where you're it, and you can stand up, and you can make a difference. I just want to pray. And if God has been speaking to you this morning, I just want you to, and you really want to be engaged in this prayer, which I'm going to be praying for you, just put your hand on your heart, and I'm just going to pray for you. Amen. Father, I just thank you today that we stand in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you came freely. And Father, when you sent your Son to earth and Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary and finally brought to birth, Lord, you hedged him about with Joseph, you know, Mary's husband. And you spoke to him and he took guardianship of that situation. Father, I thank you that when uh, Jesus was dying on the cross. You raised up another Joseph. And over that 18-hour period, Lord, he took guardianship, you know, from the cross to the grave. And he fulfilled your prophetic word. And I pray, dear God, that we will learn from these lessons that you, Lord Jesus, need your people, need your body to lead your cause into every area of our society. Lord, you need people. You are not doing it from heaven independent of us. And as you, Jesus, yourself needed the two Josephs, Lord, today you need those men and women here and throughout our nation and throughout the world who will recognize that they need to stand up. They need to step up. Lord, they need to weigh up and they need to offer up what they carry to extend your kingdom and to bring blessing in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. And everyone said, Amen. I'm not going to stop until I get a good Amen. And everybody said, Amen. Ah, I'm pleased now. Thank you, team.